0: What it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis.
1: Hi, podcast listeners. This is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today for the show that is shaping the way that the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. QBAC is a next-generation advancement solution that reimagines alumni engagement to increase major planned and principal giving. QBAC acts as a force multiplier for fundraisers, enabling them to focus on what they do best, developing deep relationships with prospects and cultivating them into lifelong donors. QBAC automates the qualification process beyond simple scoring to ensure that your fundraisers have the best prospects. QBAC also uncovers actionable insights about current and future prospects to help fundraisers develop personalized cultivation strategies. Start closing bigger gifts in less time by going to www.cubac.com to schedule a free demo. Also, how about being our next host for the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow? I'm looking forward to two things this summer, getting back to the ballpark with my kids and getting the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow back on the calendar. If your organization would like to be a host location, let's schedule a time to chat. The Responsive Fundraising Roadshow provides six hours of the best fundraising training out there based on Responsive's for sense sense-making tools. Hosting Responsive's Roadshow is not like hosting a major conference that requires months of planning and all types of resources. All we need you to do is provide us with a safe learning environment for 25 adult professionals in your community who want to understand how highly effective fundraising really works. There is no cost to your organization, and we will reimburse you for all related expenses. If your organization would like to host the responsive fundraising roadshow in your community, reach out and let's have a conversation today. Hi, Al. I am delighted to have you on the fundraising talent podcast this morning. Uh, it is it is it is very early this morning your time. It's five a.m. on your side of the world, and it is three. O'clock in the afternoon, my side of the world. So I am bright and alive, and I've had multiple cup of co- cups of coffee. You are just finishing your first, uh, so uh, and I am very delighted to say that you are our first guest on the fundraising talent podcast uh, from down under. So we're going to let you introduce yourself, and
2: uh, and then we'll hear what you've got to say. Well, it's wonderful to be uh, tuning in from down under. It is. Uh, Five o'clock uh, Melbourne time in the morning here, so I'm coming down from a very locked down Australia at the moment, unfortunately with COVID and things. But uh, it's great to be the first Aussie on the uh, on the podcast, and uh, I uh, I'm a consultant. I run my own company, Alumgrow Consultancy, uh, down here, based out of Melbourne, but servicing all over um, all over the world, effectively uh, helping schools, universities, colleges um, with their alumni engagement with their fundraising with their enrollments uh, marketing um stuff that I've been working in for the last couple of decades with various institutions um over the over the course of my career so far
1: yeah that's uh, before we dive into our subject so tell me what fundraising Um, So I'm pretty, I'm pretty up to speed on what the fundraising sort of community, the profession, if you will, sort of looks like here in the US. I know what it looks like in Canada, and I relatively sort of up to speed on what it looks like in Canada. But um, I mean, in uh, the United Kingdom, Um, is fundraising really sort of keeping up with is that sort of where it is down there, too? Or um, where would you say the profession is?
2: It certainly has developed over the last 10 to 15 years. We're certainly nowhere near the realm of the United States or so Northern America. Um, we're probably a little bit behind the UK as well. Um, I think COVID has knocked us around a little bit. Um, it's going to take us a little while to recover in terms of fundraising. Um, fundraising for a cause is not so bad, but uh, fundraising to build buildings and capital campaigns and things like that um, are been put on the back burner down here for a little while. Sure. We've lost a lot of jobs, unfortunately, uh, in the sector. Um, a lot of universities, for instance, have cut their uh, staff by you know, 50 60% in their advancement area, even in, in more in some cases. So it's going to take a number of years to, to bounce back, I think, for Australia um, and New Zealand, for that matter. Um, but with, before COVID, it was starting to get into some good shape so, not been, you know, um, at the forefront of that for the last couple of decades, but I, I think we're just taking a couple of steps back at the moment, unfortunately. But, um, New shoots will spring forth. I've got no doubt, and to better ways of doing things, we do need to follow the um, the lead of our American um, neighbours, so to speak, and rely less on government handouts and rely less on enrolment income to um, to help shore up the future for many of our organisations, particularly Unis, who are doing it pretty tough with um, no international enrolments and closed international borders at the moment. So. Now,
1: we ask our guests to come on with a big idea or bold opinion. You've listened periodically, uh, so you sort of get the routine. So we don't ask our guests to, I don't know what you're going to tell me. You might throw it, throw something at me that I don't even understand. Uh, but uh, we ask our guests to come with a big idea or bold opinion. What do you have for us this morning?
2: Well, one of the biggest things, and particularly down here, is like when times get tough in the industry, um, one of the first things that we do in, in advancement is start shedding staff. We sh- sh- um, start um, cutting back on, on professional development, um, and that has been going on now for the last 18 months or so. And one of the things that I, I think we've got to get better at as as Practitioners in the field is to actually sell what we do a hell of a lot more strongly than what we actually are at the moment. Particularly down in this part of the um in of the world, um, our leadership it really just doesn't get fundraising. They don't get alumni relations. They don't get, I suppose, the practice of it and the the patience has got to sit behind it um, to be able to form the relationships and build that. Um, those bridges with our alumni, with our potential donors, to um, to then have success with their programs. They sort of down here in particular. It's, it's also they want now money. Um, I was speaking to a school there the other day, and they don't have an alumni program at this stage. They're a reasonably large school, and they're wanting to jump straight into a capital campaign. Well, it's just like well. The way that I've always been taught and I've had some great mentors that have worked extensively in the UK and the in US in, um, over my career, so just so the first thing, you must have a strong alumni relations um, platform to work from. You know, we get 70-odd percent of our funding comes from our alumni and yet um, they're not prepared to put in the work and the time and the effort to actually reach out and um, and really sort of do the hard yards in terms of that relationship-building piece. I think we've, in some ways, the digital era has probably, I think, sort of made it harder to build relationships. Particularly down here in Australia, it's had a, a fair impact, I think, in terms of being able to sort of – it's stifled it a little bit. And we're sort of a little bit different from you guys in that yeah, you know, we've been having online learning in the university sector for probably the last forty years. You know, we don't have to go physically to a campus to actually go and study, and that's been the case for some time. So it's hard to build that affinity as well. There's also that sitting in behind it. So we have to find ways and be more, I think, entrepreneurial, if you like. Um, in terms of being able to reach our alumni much more um much more effectively than what we do, I think, as an industry as a whole, but particularly down in this part of the world. Um but some um, I said it's um, it's it's sort of something that leadership has to be constantly taught about. So our leaders, our vice chancellors, the heads of our universities, they don't get that, and they just want that now money, that the quick fix, and it's something that um, we've got to get better at selling what we do and how we do it and why we do it the way we do it. Um, it's, it's probably a it's it's probably my uh, my big idea. ultimately. Mean, it's sort wait, of something wait, that's wait, different. Wait.
1: When you sort of kicked off that comment, you uh, you prefaced it. With part of that initial comment was the idea that, that professional development was in there. Are you referring to the Are you referring to the fundraisers that need the professional development? Or Are we talking about the development of perhaps the CEOs or even the um, I, I I don't know if in the I don't know if, if if you all have the traditional board structures where the boards need to sort of be brought up to speed. Um, what what's the what, what's the What's the thought there with, with regards to professional
2: development? I think very much so our boards, our leadership of our universities, and we do have fairly traditional board structures like okay. you guys do. Um, yeah. They, they need a bit of work, yet it, it always seems to be, like well, our fundraisers or our alumni relations people, we're the ones that are getting the, the professional development, but it's like it's one of those things that they need to expand their horizons a little bit more and, and you know, it, Rub shoulders with some of their American counterparts and UK counterparts, and, and you know get. I'd love to take a, a vice chancellor, and <laughs> this might be a wishful thing but sit them in a development office for a couple of weeks and let them shadow, and yeah. just see see what it's all about. Go and meet um, some donors, go and meet alumni, go and go to events and actually see how things are done. And then you'll see where the shortfalls actually are, where the resourcing is needed to, um, to do what we do better. Um, ultimately I would love to see that happen.
1: And is the, um, I worked with a client once sort of along the lines of, um, I I worked with a client once where I had the, the, the development offices, a private, small, private independent school. And, uh, and I knew that the new CEO, the new head of school, as they called him, uh, did not have a grasp of what the development officer was doing. And I also knew that the development officer was not sort of, he wasn't elevated in such a way where he was seen as much more than just sort of a glad handing guy who was always asking for money. Um, and I encouraged, I encouraged the development, I mean, the the new head of school to accompany the... Um, and i've actually developed a, a, what one of our de- our deliberate practices around this um requiring the development officer to do approximately 50% of his meetings with someone other than, you know rather than just going solo for example and consequently this had a school accompanied him um and he came back to the office while i was doing a visit and um he had done three meetings and he was completely exhausted and i mean mentally exhausted right Um, I mean, and this is this is a gentleman who had a uh, had previously had a very successful naval career on these big boats and etc, etc, etc. Very accomplished individual, but going on three meetings back to back to back with major donors just totally wore him out. Is that sort of
2: what you're talking about? Yeah, exactly. Like, And one of the other things too that we used to do quite effectively at the University of Tasmania where I worked for a number of years, um, we used to actually do roadshows and we'd invite all the head honchos of the university to actually, you'd have the head of alumni, you'd have the head of fundraising, you'd have the head of advancement services. Um, head of a request, all that sort of thing and we'd sit there on a panel and they could throw questions at us and we used to it was a way of advertising what we did and we'd get some donors actually in to talk about why they donated to the university and and really to try and give them that feel of what we do and why we do it and the emotion that sort of sits behind it um, as well for people wanting to give their time and give their money to their alma mater uh, you know that's a it's a hell of a thing you, they want to do but they don't seem to get that but one way we we got to sort of start to get around that at the university of tassie at least was uh was to do that sort of stuff and put ourselves out in front of them more, um, have them accompany us as, as much as we possibly, and get them involved in the, particularly in the larger conversations. I think it sort of started to open up their eyes a little bit, and funnily enough, the resources sort of started to flow a little bit more than than um, what I'd experienced certainly in the past but, uh, at other institutions. So, yeah, Just exactly the, spot on. Does the – um are, are the development officers –
1: so, so bring me up to speed on sort of, so if, if I'm working at a university, uh, in Australia, is that do you have the traditional dynamic where you have the uh, th- this is this is where I, this is where I see this working most successfully? You have a president or a CEO, so it's sort of the senior most individual in the organ in the in the in the university. You have a vice president or perhaps a vice chancellor, as you might have been referring to. This person tends to be a really good people manager. They're not even a rock star fundraiser, um, but they're really good. It's so they get fundraising, but they're really really good at sort of navigating people and managing people and motivating them and so forth. And then you have these frontline development officers, major gifts officers, as we call them. And, and, and what I have seen in some settings or what I have, what I have heard, what I've been, you know, what's been described to me is when that, that VP that's sort of in the middle knows how to bridge the relationship between that senior, most individual and that gift officer who oftentimes has the relationship with the donor, when you have that VP who can bridge the relationship there, and then get those two individuals in front of donors,
2: that's like a major culture building dynamic. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, like I don't think we do enough of that, particularly down here. Um, I, I don't think that's. I think that's a skill set that we could certainly work on our vice presidents and probably our development officers for that matter as well. Could yeah. Could, um, could use some work on because I don't think we do that as well as what our counterparts do, particularly in the U S. Um, I think that's absolutely a a great idea. That's something that's sort of, yeah, I I can't think of too many institutions that do it very well on that front uh, down here at this stage. And, 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 and I'm
1: guessing that if I was a major gift officer, I fly to, I fly to Melbourne, I'm meeting with a major donor. Does that donor, Typically know how to navigate. Is is that major donor in Melbourne sort of that typically not a whole lot different than that major donor that I might be flying
2: to interact with if I was flying out to Los Angeles or something? I, I would have thought they're pretty much very similar sort of beings I suppose if, if you like, um, you know, that, that the same things make them tick, the same things get them over the line when it comes yeah. to relationship building and trust building um, I don't think they're, they're, they're that different um, I think probably it's more the affinity side of things that we struggle with as I was talking about before in terms yeah. of that it's not, you can't expect that it's there because they may not even have set foot inside a campus that they may have studied at for three or four years because it's done totally online so um, there's there's a little bit of a difference there but i think they're basically the same beast they ultimately want to make a difference um, to their alma mater or to a uh, particular research project that sort of stuff i don't think they're that different no
1: so so yeah and 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 that's some of the things that i think are are starting to be talked about here in the u.s because we are seeing a lot of, especially the last two decades especially with the you know i mean you've got a lot of online learning platforms a lot of people are learning how to learn online. And so, so consequently some of the, uh, attrition or even being able to engage those alumni, where are you seeing this work? I mean, where are you seeing this? Um, I mean, it, it, I, I can't, I can't think of a single alumni relations person that I've had here on the podcast. And then probably one out of five, one out of six of my guests are in some, you know, in some way or another in an, an alumni relations sort of position, who isn't not saying alumni participation is down and and some of the things that you you all might be sort of seeing as a predicament. I mean, I, I don't know that I don't know that we're all that ahead here any differently than you all might be.
2: I think um, one of the things and one of the things I've always tried to do in my career when I've headed up alumni organizations, you've got to go to them, ultimately, it's like you've got to make them care. I suppose give them ways to, to care about their alma mater and the things that their alma mater are doing actually out in the community and things like. And a very simple thing that um, we used to do with our alumni, particularly deacon. Like Australia is a big country in terms of not necessarily population but in terms of its size. So it's not an easy thing just to fly up to you know to, to Brisbane or to fly over to Perth or whatever because you know, that's three, four, five hours on a plane yeah. to start us um, and like different time zones and all this sort of stuff. So it's it's not an easy thing to do. But one of the things we always try to do is like we we'd hold – particular events. So it was always at the same time of the year, we'd always go to Perth, it's would say in, a, in the springtime, and we'd hold an event of some description, something that was engaging, and we kept coming back year after year after year and being very consistent in the way we were reaching out to these people because most of them hadn't been on a campus back in Melbourne at, at Deakin University. Um, most of them had never set foot. They'd done their MBA or whatever it is um, actually all totally online. They do their exams, all that sort of stuff was all done over in over in Perth or Brisbane. Or Sydney. So we'd often get the feedback you know this is great, Deacon. I've I've got no affinity with Deacon at all, but it's great you're actually seeing physical staff coming, shaking me by the hand, putting on events, having a chat to me about what Deacon's up to, uh having a guest speaker, that sort of thing is, you know, you've sort of got to go to them and take the fight to them, so to speak. Um uh, for want of a better expression. So it's so been being very consistent about it though. You can't sort of do it one year. And not do it the next, uh, or do it for a little while and then drop off. You've just got to keep that consistency about, it, and that's the key to in, in my entire career in alumni, it's um, consistency is a massive key um, in terms of building that affinity. Because um, as soon as you you start being inconsistent, that you lose that trust factor, and once that's gone, as we all know, it doesn't matter whether it's a personal relationship or a relationship with alumni. Then it's it's hard to come back from. Have you
1: noticed because you've worked with it sounds like you've done work with in both higher education and and in k through twelve independent schools yes one of the things I have oftentimes said to my uh, independent school clients is um, so sometimes your alumni relations people sort of inherit." They inherit a way of thinking from sort of the admissions department and the admissions department generally assume there seems to be an underlying assumption uh, in admissions. If you think about the way admissions works, oftentimes is that the uh, whoever the constituent is, whoever the, the, the customer, quote unquote, customer is that they come to you. Um, you know, and so, and so the, the, for example, if you're an admissions office, the student visits the campus and they come to you and they arrive on campus and you give them a tour and you test them or whatever, whatever the hell you do. Um, but alumni relations and certainly fundraising by nature is like what you said a few moments ago, we have to go to them And so sometimes you have to, it's almost like, it's almost like that role in the admissions office that has to learn how to do recruiting. It's that recruiting role. It's the fact that you got to go out in the field and you got to find these people is part of, is part of the under, this is where I'm going with this, is part of the underlying um, challenge that all of us are struggling with is that the donor is no longer coming to us and that And that if we're not, quote unquote, out in the field pursuing them, they're not going to line up in droves and show up for us. And so whether that's literally, literally, you know, or, you know, physically them showing up or that's figuratively saying, are we talking about sort of a shift in um, I've,
2: I've always been taught that we go to them. Do you follow what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, and I think in some ways we've just got to get over ourselves and get over our ego and actually, <laughs> right. because like we've got to realize that we're not front of mind. Um, like, there's that yes. many other things taking their attention. And like, and we're, especially, I, I, I'm assuming it's the same in America. It's like we, uh, our, in terms of fundraising, <clears throat> excuse me, that um, we are up against like the Heart Foundation and cancer foundations and things like that that are fundraising. You've got much more of a heartstring pull, if you like, than, say, yeah. our a- education institutions so we've just got to get over ourselves and and pack away the ego and say well yeah we do need to do the hard work we do need to do the hard yards and go out to them Um, and same goes with our alumni as well because um at the end of the day we um you know we're just not that's not that important to them we have to sort of show them how we can be important to them much better than what we do i think um as, as institutions yeah spot on and, and,
1: and is there anything – so I've been doing a lot of research for the forthcoming book, and one of the things that I'm figuring out – so I'm, I'm writing about the difference between what are uh, what are market economies driven by commodities versus gift economies that are driven by gifts. And what a lot of these authors that are writing this stuff, Al, basically are saying is, is that in a gift economy, which is what fundraising is all about, it's not about the exchange of commodities. It's about the exchange of gifts, exchange of gifts that we have to that you have to let the relationship precede that. And I don't know that fundraising in any context, be it in independent schools, higher ed, or anywhere else, have we learned how to allow the relationship to come before and sort of be the guiding force or or is you know in 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 a in a gift exchange relationship, it's all about it's all about the relationship that that exists. And once the gift is exchanged, the relationship doesn't cease. I mean, the, the, that that's essentially an expression of the relationship. Do you follow what I'm saying? Yeah,
2: and I, I think that stewardship sort of piece is something we don't, do uh, very well in Australia. It's like we yeah. give a gift, and then then it sort of ends a little bit, or things start tapering off. Yes. We've got to find better ways to be able to actually keep that donor engaged, even if we get a no. It might be a no for now, but it may not necessarily be a no in two years' time when they're ready to donate or we've found that sort of avenue where they want to make that impact. Um, but it's sort of something we we in Australia. I'm, I'm assuming it's probably similar in the in the states as well. You get a no, or not not quite now, and then that's where the the relationship ends it's like i don't get that it's just like if if someone's going to help me out in life i want to keep that um keep that relationship going whether it's a family member or whether it's a friend or whether it's a colleague or whatever you, you don't sort of just cut yourself off um when the, when the transaction if you like is, is done and dusted We've and become and- very transactional i think in the way we we go about fundraising and- which and- needs to stop
1: And and that's essentially that's that's everything that I'm reading about, which has got me and I and I've I've been fundraising for two decades and I've never sort of come across this stuff. But anthropologists would basically tell us that if you go into so anthropologists will go into indigenous cultures and they've been studying this for, you know, century, you know, for quite some time and a gift economy, the relationship doesn't end at that point of exchange but when i think about the local supermarket or the local big box you know appliance store or something um like the way you just described it once that transaction has happened the relationship ends. And I mean, that's one of the defining characteristics of what a gift economy is, is, is that when that gift is exchanged or even when it's not exchanged, that relationship in many cases, that, that relationship sort of carries on. And I think because fundraising has become so characteristic of the marketplace, we don't know how to sort of exist in that. We don't know how to exist in that sort of, it, it, it's, it's like exchanging a gift at Christmas with your family. Once you exchange that gift, the relationship sorta of continues regardless of whether you like the gift or not. You know what I mean?
2: I think that's a good analogy, actually. I like that. It's um it's it's just one of those things. It's just like because ultimately I would have thought once somebody actually donates to your cause, like I would have thought they're an easy target later on, as long as you're showing them the 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 attention and, and and you know that stewardship factor. Um, I, they're an easy target then to find and come back to and say, hey, we need your help again for something else. Um, like I it's it's a bit like yeah just like throwing the baby out with the bathwater so to speak you know, I don't know whether that's an American expression but it's like um, <laughs> it's, yes. it's yeah I, I don't get it like in as soon as they're uh, donated or whatever that uh, the door comes down and, and that's it it's just like I don't get that thinking I don't get it from a marketing perspective I don't get it from a relationship building perspective I certainly don't get it from a fundraising perspective
1: yeah yeah so in, when, when we talk about gift economies the the It's it all these anthropologists and there's a number of them and I'll put I'll put some some suggestions in the show notes. But all of these authors are generally talking about rather than just a simple linear process where you've basically got the the two sides of a transaction, you know, the buyer and the seller and the process is just that it's just. You know, one point to another, and then and then essentially the relationship just happens between those two points. In a gift economy, the relationship is circular, and it's sort of always and and and, and all these anthropologists will basically say that the relationship is very characteristic of movement, and so that's what I was going to ask you hmm. about. Um, the relationship is very characteristic of movement rather than just sort of starting and stopping. So like when I go to the grocery store, my relationship with that grocery store store, once I've, once I've transacted to buy that box of cereal, the relationship's essentially over. It'll never, ha- you know, if if I never choose to go back in that grocery store, it'll, nothing will ever happen. But in a gift economy, the relationship is characterized by a constant movement And I'm wondering how, uh, so in higher education here in the U.S., where where we see that movement actually working is oftentimes in our scholarship programs. So the donor, you know, the student or the alum becomes a donor who gives to the university, who gives to the, uh, you know, the student a scholarship who then, once they are at a time of life where they can similarly do the same thing, you see this sort of the cyclical process that's sort of created yeah. there. That's probably the healthiest example. So I'm curious, do you see though, do you see that sort of scholarship sort of giving in the in traditional higher ed where you're at?
2: Yeah, certainly in Australia, scholarship giving has been strong for a number of years. That's probably one area that we do do reasonably well. We like to get our scholarship recipients up close and personal with their donors uh, to put a face to the actual check at the end of the day, if you want to call it that. Um, It's sort of something that I think um, most universities in this country um, are are pretty good at doing. Um, There are some exceptions to that, but that's one area I think we are strong at and and making a bit of a fuss of our, um, our alum or our... Our donors that actually are giving to these scholarships, but um, you know, to come back to that uh, the box cereal analogy you used there yeah. before. It's just like that. You see, and where the main difference is with um, you know, you're dealing with human emotion. Ultimately, you're dealing with people that are developing all the time. You, you want to bring it back to an anthropology um sort of scenario. Um, you're dealing with people's emotions. Ultimately, in fundraising, you're starting with trust and and building that relationship. But and that's a constantly evolving thing. And therefore our our methods and what we do behind the scenes um, has to constantly evolve with that person as well, um, and, and their their stage of development, their stage of life. Unlike the box of cereal, who once it's eaten, it's it's all over and done with. So uh, yeah, yeah, and okay, and that's where again,
1: I'm just reading. I'm I'm not i I'm not an expert on this, and most of my listeners have <laughs> figured this out. Jason gets on here on the podcast, and he basically talks about what he's reading <laughs> last week. Right? Well, so what you just described. So what the anthropologist will tell you differently than a commodity. So that box of cereal is a commodity. And we're oftentimes talking about value. What's the value of that box of cereal? It's worth three bucks. And so we exchange $3 for a box of cereal. And, and oftentimes we're using the term value. But when we're talking about gifts, what the anthropologist is oftentimes going to tell us is that there, there is a part of ourselves. You were talking about the sort of the emotional attachment. There's a part of ourselves that sort of goes with that gift. And I think we mistakenly, and this is one of the critiques that I would have of a lot of your Western sort of American fundraising. I think we're constantly trying to sort of uh, balance the scales. We're, co- we're constantly trying to balance the scales uh, because we, we, we on the receiving side see that, in that emotional Sort of attachment that the donor does have with that gift, but we're mistakenly thinking that they're buying a damn box of cereal, and so we've got to mm-hmm. give them something that they equate to the box of cereal, like the cereal box. And that's not actually what's happening. It's the uh, it's what one author calls the labor of uh, I think it's called the labor of uh, it's basically the labor of gratitude, the late labor of gratitude. And it's and it's that it's that it's that what you s- described a few moments ago about the idea of getting that student who's the recipient of the uh, donors scholarship um, in front of them because they're they're emotionally attached to that that contribution that they made. And you're sort of just closing that feedback loop. That's all you're really doing. You're sort of just you're giving them. And, and there's 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 work on the side of the recipient that I don't think we like to do. Um, I don't think we're particularly, you know, when it comes to fundraising. I, I don't know how you would say this about our friends down in, down 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 under, but I don't think we're good on the receiving side. I think we are all great about talking about how it how great it is to give. Um, but fundraising is so much more about receiving um and there's so much more quote unquote labor to be done, work to be done to receive correctly um and and we've got these marketplace assumptions that get in there and sort of screw it all up. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah, and I, I think it probably comes back to the way society has sort of developed over the last probably 50 or 60 years. It's just yes. like it's, it's all sort of quick money sort of stuff. It's quick lifestyle. It's quick, quick, quick. Yes. It's like in some things, are the, the, in particular when you start to dealing with you know, people giving you their time or giving you it money, it's like they've worked, they may have worked a lifetime to be able to get into a position where they're able to donate. That's a particular scholarship. They may work their behinds off to actually be able to, to to give that bequest down the line or whatever. So it's, you know, that's to me that's that's special sort of stuff. And I, and I think we don't probably. I don't think we quite sort of recognise how special that actually is. Like that money could quite easily go to their their niece or their nephew or just send it down to the the Hart Foundation down the road or whatever, but they've chosen to give it to your education institution because they believe in it. They may have experienced your education institution as a student or a staff member. That's a a hell of a thing, a hell of a commitment. We need to sort of show greater appreciation for that, I think.
1: Yeah, I think we're trying too hard. Uh, another author I've re- been recently reading—the name of her book is *The Social Value of Money*. I think we've been trying so hard in the fundraising space for the last half century, largely since the you know m- mid-century marketing and advertising. You know, since the sort of the Mad Men era and Madison Avenue and all that sort of stuff, we've been trying so hard. To sell value and and, and sell value at, at sort of an equal exchange, balancing the scales that we don't understand what sort of we don't we don't understand why these people are giving. And it's not yeah. rooted in the same impulses that we use when we go buy that damn box of cereal. I yeah. think that's. You know, when I go to buy that box of cereal, I want to know that it's worth three dollars. I want to know that it, you know, my kids are gonna eat it. But I the other thing I know is I'm gonna go buy another box next week. I, I think mm-hmm. that's part of the problem too, is that we've gotten so we've we've adopted marketplace type thinking to the point where we've trained up our donors to give almost almost mimicking the behavior that they use at the grocery store where they literally buy a different box of cereal every week. Um, You know, are, are, are are you all down there any better at sort of this renewal process where you're actually renewing donors in a, you know, very meaningful and significant sort of way? Or are they literally sort of choosing
2: a different box of cereal every week? I think the statistics would uh, down here would be uh, the more tending towards the box of cereal, unfortunately. Right. It's, um, <laughs> right. It's, um, yeah. It's again, it's a, it's an area where we we haven't done well historically, and we're still not doing well now. In some of the ways, it's it's due to the resourcing we're putting in, but we're like again, we're approaching it from that transactional viewpoint, and like it's just not working. Um, ultimately. Does the does the church play its I, again? I'm I'm
1: asking all these cultural sort of context, contextual sort of questions. Here in the U.S., I think we're sort of – historically, the church has played a very significant role in informing – the institutional church has played a very significant role in sort of informing a lot of these practices. And so uh, some of this that we're talking about with the marketplace has been sort of kept at bay. But definitely over the last several decades, we're seeing that the the church's influence in, in generosity is sort of waning. And, and that's certainly not the case. Is it Is it similarly is true that the institutional church or other other sort of you know re- religious affiliations uh, are, are becoming less and less of an influencer in terms of how charitable giving plays out?
2: Oh, without a doubt, and we just don't have the same amount of participation, and it doesn't matter if it's Christian religions or or other religions, we just don't have that that we had, say, back in the 50s or 60s. If you were born, say, into a Catholic family, you went to church every Sunday, you gave on the the, the plate at at church and all that sort of thing, you went to a Catholic school, all that sort of stuff. We don't have that sort of happening so much anymore. I think while our last census um for the last 40 or 50 years has shown that religion and alignment with religion has slowly declined and quite significantly actually um over the last 40 years in this country and i think that's sort of yeah and i think probably australia is probably may not necessarily be the best example seeing where a, a bunch of convicts who we were originally down here some of us so as um it's a church and things we've always looked at um with a little bit of skepticism, I suppose healthy skepticism, but some. Um, but I think that's probably very true. Over the last forty, fifty years, things have been slowly sort of um, going downhill on that front. Does the a, does a tax system work for you all?
1: Uh, one of the things I sometimes I, I get uh, tongue tied when I'm talking to my friends up in Canada about the tax structure. Um, it, it, do, do you have tax structure that actually favors a charitable gift,
2: or 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 not? Yeah that's one thing we do um we do do quite well I think um our federal government here um is it makes it easy for people when um to to donate and then claim it back in the tax and things I think that's sort of something we do do very well we don't necessarily I don't think we probably push that aspect enough in the way we actually sell our um our fundraising side of things as as institutions we don't bring that to donors attention enough I don't think um Funnily enough, we're talking about transactions, but that's sort of something we don't do that well. But I think our system here is set up quite well to make it easy for people to donate, make it easier, yeah.
1: Fascinating.
2: Um, Our – you do
1: consulting. Before we've got about five more minutes, uh, I want to hear who 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 do you work with? Who are your typical clients? And if anybody's listening to us today, wherever they find themselves in the world, what do you who, who is that person you typically want to hear from? When I've got a consultant on as a guest, I always want to sort of um, I, I, I want to understand who that client is that you want to hear from. So tell us about what you do, and then let's hear
2: about who you, who that ideal client would be. I work primarily with education providers at all levels of all shapes and sizes. So, K to 12 schools, um, mm-hmm. universities, colleges, residential colleges, um, TAFES, um, which is sort of, um, I'm not sure whether you have that in, in the States, but it sort of sits between schools and universities uh, level. So, I work with them really to sort of. Um, using our programs, using my experience, um, using um, a program we call Development Pro to really sort of lift and elevate their enrolment marketing, their fundraising um, capacities, their alumni support uh, mechanisms um, in a sustainable way um, to then um, leading to you know, greater revenue streams coming into the. Um, the school system or the university system because one of the things we uh, we have at the moment is we rely very much on government funding and yeah. enrolment income and we have to grow that um, that side of things there's, there's a lot of institutions down here that don't even have an advancement function so we they're starting off from absolute scratch so putting those, helping them put those principles, those foundations in place um, to then grow from there and develop those revenue streams that they need, that, those volunteering streams, um, that lifelong connection with their alumni leading to hopefully more enrolments from kids of alumni leading to fundraising that side of things. Our website is alumgrow.com.au We uh, deal with schools uh, and colleges and things all over the world. Um, I started back uh, uh, in January 2020, having worked in the sector for the last 20 years at university level and private school um level so um we have a fair bit to offer there in terms of um setting those, those sustainable foundations and a lot of the things we've talked about today jason that's uh, that we don't do very well in australia is giving them the tools to be able to do that and and eventually set their school up set their university up for long-term success financial independence from say government funding and not having to rely so much on uh, on enrollment income to survive in, in tough times like we're going through now um, you know there's a number of schools universities that haven't put the the time and effort into their advancement programs and are struggling they they're, they're they're confronting their own mortality um, as we speak, um, because they've relied so much on student income, particularly international income, that it's no longer there and may not be there for the next twelve months. Um, the way that we're sort of going in Australia and tracking at the moment. So that's we help those education providers we do a little bit of work with charities and things as well, but um, primarily education providers because that's what I've specialised in. I've won awards and, and, and done had you know, a lot of success over the years um, in in. And the organizations that I've worked for. So it's, um, in a nutshell, that's, uh, that's what a does. And, uh, again, uh, it would be great to work with some, uh, um, some organizations over the United States in the, in the coming years, um, as well.
1: And who is that person? I'm guessing that it's a CEO. It's a senior leader that generally, who is that person you want to hear from? So if they pick up, if they're listening to this conversation and they, uh, and they say, I'm going, to, I'm going to reach out to Al, and they want to have this conversation, who, who
2: is that gen- generally that person? In schools, it's often the principals or their business managers or business directors. Um, yeah. Sometimes it's the director of advancements, but ultimately the, the purse strings in a school are held by the, the principal and the business manager, so they will uh, be the ones that sign off if they're going to sign me up as a consultant. University is a bit different. Um, usually it's probably from a director of advancement type role, director of fundraising. Um, but it can differ from university to university over here. But that's primarily that's they're the people I'm mainly talking to, um, and um, and sometimes you get the odd alumni director. But it's mainly in that some um, advancement, head of advancement, sort of role. Yeah, you, you got me thinking real quick.
1: It, it, do you all see the same dynamic? So if 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 a shop, are you seeing the same sort of? Backdoor dynamic that we have for, for the first twenty years of my career, most of my more senior colleagues would say that they sort of came through the back door. And what what I'm seeing, sort of the generation that's sort of coming behind me, there's a much more intentional sort of path, so they're coming through, you know, college and graduate school programs or something like that. Do you see that as well? And where are they coming from? In are they coming
2: from? professionals working in the area
1: yeah yeah so if i'm a fundraiser if i'm gonna if i'm gonna land in a fundraising job in in melbourne right now but i'm not but i'm not a fundraiser where am i generally coming from
2: um well a little bit like me i come from a marketing background originally okay. i started okay. in secondment um, in advancements but it's usually marketing is often or public relations that's Style yes. of things because ultimately, the, you know, um, it's it's this form of marketing It's just to, after different results in terms of alumni and fundraising. When it's all said and done, but um, it's usually okay. marketing and PR um, okay. down here in Australia. Yeah, yeah, yeah and usually yeah. Um, trying to snavel as many as we can from the United States and the UK <laughs> right, <laughs> to, right. to come down and help us out. <laughs> right, and if if they that's interesting.
1: So I put the, I, I talked about that a little bit in my first book. If 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 uh, if an American comes to Australia, are are they going to stick? Are they going to make it? Can, can can American fundraiser who's five, 10 years into a major gifts
2: career, can they uh, come to Australia and actually stick around for a while? I I I think so. I think there's that many opportunities to grow the sector yeah. down here, Australia. As most people have been down here, is a wonderful lifestyle. I, I would never change my country and, and and go and live anywhere else in the world. So there's some great lifestyle sort of yeah. elements to it as well. But there's so many opportunities in so many different areas, and not just in the education sector, but in the charitable sector yeah. to really make a mark. And uh, like and I've I know of at least two or three that have come from America originally um, and have made it big down here. They've done very, very well. And mm-hmm. I, to my knowledge, they've got no um, uh, plans on ever returning back to, to the mother country, so to speak. Um, <laughs> I think they're Aussies to stay, which we're quite happy to have them as well. So we'll, we'll take you. as you know, Jason, you come on down. <laughs> so yeah, We'll take I, you uh, as well. <laughs> I
1: don't. Uh, so I, I teach over at the local college, and I, at one of our senior – Senior development directors over there at the college. He's got a daughter who uh, who followed a very similar path. Um, I think she, you know, when she when she went to college, she went to graduate school. I think she even did some post grad work. But anyway, she landed in fundraising, and I think she's down in Australia now. And um, and I don't think I've heard that she's coming back. So uh, <laughs> I. Uh, um, and and uh, I, you know, this is a very edu- very educated young woman, and uh, and perhaps doing really well. So I know there's a lot of validity to that idea that um, that there are opportunities. I-, I have said that for a long time that you know a young fundraiser who's perhaps six, eight, ten years into their career can pretty much, if they can sort of demonstrate the capacity, you know, to work, they can pretty much go anywhere on the planet at this point. With the demand, like you're talking about.
2: Yeah. Like, and I was speaking to a major um, executive recruitment firm here not that long ago. And it's pretty much for that, particularly in the senior positions, it's write your own ticket in fundraising at the moment. Um, Yeah. We're sort of, it's a short, um, supply skill set down here in Oz. And we've, I know we've lost a few that have gone home because of the COVID situation and things as well. So we'll be looking to rebuild in the next year, two, three years. And um, certainly if anybody um, that listens to your show is, is thinking about a, a tree change or a kangaroo change, so to speak, um, <laughs> um, they uh, they will find work down here and, and have the opportunity to do some wonderful things, I think. It has
1: been a pleasure to have you on the show this morning. I am very grateful that you got up really early to be our first <laughs> guest from Australia. We are creeping up on 300 episodes here, and I'm embarrassed well to done. say that we have not uh, we have not had anyone from down under on the uh, on the podcast. So I'm very grateful that you uh, represented so well this morning. Um, Alistair, you're certainly welcome back. Uh, certainly welcome back anytime you'd like to. And please encourage your friends and colleagues uh, uh, as well. We'd love to have them.
2: Thank you. Thank you very much, Jason. And um, thank you for the listeners for supporting the show and, and also QBAC as well. I know I support the show. Uh, so it's been wonderful um, to, uh, to join in from down here in, the, in Melbourne town. And um, hopefully uh, we'll be allowed to come and travel over the USA uh, in the not too distant future.